Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, the effort to preserve indigenous languages before it's too late. And later, we hear from a Valley Chamber group that's been celebrating music across the centuries for decades. But first, last week, the KVPR newsroom launched a new podcast called The Other California, which profiles small towns around the San Joaquin Valley. This week's episode focuses on Woodlake in Tulare County, and this next story brings us to one of the city's newest, boomingest industries. It's brought in around $2 million in tax revenue. There's our mimosa. Okay. It smells pretty floral. Reporter Carrie Klein is catching a whiff of one of the company's flagship products. A hint, it's not wine. It'll go from floral to some of them that are like, whoa. What do you smell in this one when you smell it? This one, for me, smells like, if you could imagine, uh, a purple tangerine. I don't know if you can imagine a purple tangerine, but I cannot. Especially since what Jose Rivas is holding, it's one of the many oils he extracted from marijuana. Uh, We'll start with kind of our lighter, fruitier smelling ones, and we'll work our way all the way down into that really stinky, skunky smell. Inside Jose's unassuming office building, I see a chemistry lab of every cannabis connoisseur's dreams. Bubbling evaporators, storage tanks of liquid nitrogen, and trays and trays of drying marijuana buds. You see, we have about 200 pounds in here right now. Jose is the CEO of a company called Premium Extracts, and they squeeze, distill, and steam everything they can from the flower. Essentially what we've developed here is a methodology to isolate the components and the molecules of the cannabis plant, which are responsible for its taste, its flavor, and all the nuanced aroma that comes from each individual cannabis strain. In one room, I see jars full of nearly pure THC, thick and oozing like tree sap. In another, freezers packed with vials of sloshing yellow and orange oils. Um, Hey, Pat, can you go grab us some gloves? Using a teeny glass dropper, it's these oils, called terpenes, that Jose and I are smell testing. Have you ever smelled refined terpenes before? Nope, definitely not. It's going to be a cool experience. Terpenes are kind of like essential oils. They add flavor and natural fragrance to products without any THC or CBD. Some are fruity, like pineapple Pez and banana OG. We have some that are are heavy, like I would describe as like a far waft of burning sugar and skunk. The language may be goofy, but Jose isn't messing around. His company has patented their terpene extraction process, and each chapstick-sized vial of oil is worth a few thousand dollars. Jose says they're used in high-end vaporizer pens. Of course, everybody enjoys the euphoric feeling associated with with recreational cannabis. Mm -hmm. But there's much more to this plant than just that, uh, and that's what we're trying to to show the world. High-end is a theme throughout Woodlake's cannabis world. Down the street, Wayne Bishop shows me a warehouse with an upscale barn aesthetic. Think hardwood floors, farm equipment, and decorative mason jars full of marijuana buds. Hopefully even this this year we'll get an on-site consumption permit. So we're trying to make this into like a winery experience. I was just going to say, you could do weddings in here. That's what we're trying to, that's, that's what we're going for. But for now, his cash flow comes from the plants themselves. The company is called Seven Points for the shape of the leaves, and it's a cultivator. So this room here will actually be harvested next week. 16,000 plants grow in vast rooms blazing with artificial sunlight. Out of the 16,000 plants, which includes a nursery, we produce somewhere between 100 and 150 pounds of flour a week. They're also a regional delivery service. Whatever stereotypes you associate with illicit weed, these companies are trying to shake them. The facilities I see are clean and professional, and they prefer the term cannabis. They view themselves almost like winemakers, only instead of Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, they deal in Cherry AK-47 and Obama Kush. 
We're hoping to actually get to very much like the wine industry where people will join our club and every quarter we'll send you this really cool wood crate with flour in it and maybe some hand-blown pipes, uh, maybe some of our edibles and just, you know, just kind of a nice little uh, package to show up on your door. These are some of the seven cannabis businesses currently in Woodlake. The city was the first in the valley to embrace recreational cannabis back in 2017. In the big city of Fresno, it would take four more years to approve its first dispensaries. So how did this recreational revolution happen in Woodlake, a town of 7,000 people, one fast food chain, and as we've said, zero stoplights? Some very opportunistic city employees. So right now we're at Castle Rock Park, which is... That's Jason um, Waters, Woodlake's community development director. He's showing me the jungle gyms and baseball diamonds at the many parks that have benefited from a cannabis sales tax. Jason co-wrote the city's new ordinances, despite the fact that he says he's never been a pot smoker. And have you, if I could ask, have you gone and tried anything now that this has all become legal? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. So still, still pretty straight-laced when it comes to that. <laughs> It's very unusual, I think, especially here in California. (laughs) Yeah, I would think so. He says as soon as California voters legalized recreational cannabis in 2016, the city saw an opportunity. Leaders introduced a 5% sales tax on all cannabis products. They also put a limit on dispensaries, only two at a time, while mandating employee background checks and round-the-clock video surveillance. You really need an extensive set of rules, which we, that was really the first step, the first thing that we did. The sales tax was approved by two-thirds of voters, but not everyone is happy. Many residents feel conflicted about this legal drug business. Others worry about being inundated by out-of-towners. Here we have all our gummies. They're $10 a pack. And people do flock from all over. Managers of Valley Pure, the Valley's first recreational dispensary, say hundreds of people come in each day. Sales associate Monica Fields, also known as a bud tender, points me to brightly lit shelves full of vape pens, vacuum sealed flour, and a plethora of edibles. Pretzels, brownies, cookies, I mean, you name it, we probably got it. Assistant manager Tommy Fields says they've got niche items too. Uh, I think we got the suppositories, those came in. What's the difference in how that, like, how how that makes you feel? Um, I guess, why would somebody use a suppository if they could ingest some other way? From what I've heard uh, from a friend, that his wife used it for her menstrual cramps, and it went away. It completely killed her period symptoms. So it's more for for the ladies, then? Yeah, I I would hope it's more for the ladies. (laughs) For the record, CBD suppositories are marketed to everyone. The afternoon I'm there, I meet a 20-something couple stocking up for a vacation and Jared Rawson, a vet who injured his back in the Air Force. Unfortunately, you know, the, the hospitals just kind of want to give you all the pain meds and it doesn't, it's not good. This is a much better route. He says he can't believe it took so long to legalize recreational cannabis when the alternative was the unregulated black market. And although the rest of the valley has been slow to catch up, He's happy Woodlake, at least, was ready for the transition. For KVPR News, I'm Carrie Klein. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Rogelio Chavez grew up in Woodlake, the youngest of seven kids in a farm worker family. He's now at UC Berkeley, but KVPR's Alice Daniel met him back when he was attending Woodlake High School. She asked him to interview another Woodlake resident, Olga Jimenez, for the Other California podcast. In this conversation, Rogelio asked Olga about her childhood working in the fields alongside her 13 siblings. Olga begins by recalling how challenging the work was. We basically grew up fast. We did not have a childhood. We were very responsible since day one. We were thirsty altogether. We were hungry altogether. We were tired altogether. Everybody had to pull their weight. Everybody. There were no slackers. If you were a slacker, you stood out like a sore thumb. As someone who wasn't necessarily exposed to this type of labor-intensive work until I was a bit older, I can't imagine how that must have been, working in something so intense at that young age. When we were picking grapes and school would start and the bus would pass by, we were in Biola, 
and the bus would pass by, we were frightened. We would hide because the bus meant authority. The bus meant school was in session. The bus meant you're in trouble. So we were very scared kids growing up. Now, why exactly were you so afraid by these authoritative figures during your childhood? Because um, child labor laws had come into existence, and the farmer was aware of this, and he told us, as his workers, he let us know that he was jeopardizing because he was letting us work, and child labor laws said you must go to school and you must be a certain age to work. Uh, you had to be like 16. We started working when we were like six. Did you have the choice of, oh, I'm gonna wait to work until I'm 16, or was that a given? Uh, we had no option. It was, it was starve or live, and we chose to live. So we had to break the law many, many times. Yeah, were you ever wishing that you weren't living that lifestyle and wishing that you were able to just have that same similar experience that students who were going to school were? Actually, at that time, very few Mexican kids graduated from eighth grade. Very few Mexican kids graduated from high school. I made it my goal to graduate from eighth grade. I made it my goal to graduate from high school. I was self-motivated. My parents didn't know the difference between an A and an F. It was not a concern. When you have to put food on the table, your children's grades are not a concern. I, I need to backtrack a little bit. When I came to California, I was almost 10 years old. And that is the first time I went to school. So by the time I graduated from eighth grade, I was 16. By the time I graduated from high school, I was 20. And since I didn't know anybody else's ages, because we were like horses with those eye blinders, you know? We, we went to work, we went to school. That was our routine. School was a vacation from work. So we worked on weekends, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday we went to school. And I couldn't understand when kids hated school. I didn't understand them. I definitely, I can't imagine myself um, being put in those scenarios. And I really, I realize now how much, well, I realized ever since, um, you know, really becoming passionate about my agricultural program at school and becoming self-aware about this amazing agricultural community that I've grown up with. Um, I realized how much work and labor that I've been taking advantage, just the process of getting all that food to my plate is something that is so intricate and delicate. And there's so many people that put all their lives effort into that just so that we're able to take one bite. We didn't grow up with um, a house with a separate bedroom for everybody. We grew up like six sisters in one bed. We grew up uh, four brothers in the other bed and four other brothers in the other bed. So when my granddaughter didn't keep her bedroom up, I left her a note. And I said, I shared my room with six sisters, and it never looked trashy like yours. And I said to her, you are, you are very blessed and lucky to have your own room and not have to share anything with anybody. I definitely could relate to that. I am the youngest of seven siblings. So yeah, like you said earlier, Woodlake is accustomed to very big families. Yes. And um, do you think that that big family atmosphere was able to help you and motivate you go through all of that, such that grueling labor at that age? I think because we were all together and we were all a family. We were one unit. There was no separation. We all fit in the car or we didn't fit. There was no seat belts. And um, carried our lunch and carried our water for the day. And there was one thing my father was adamant about, and that was that we were a hat. And if we didn't have a hat, he'd make one out of paper or something. But we must wear a hat because to protect ourselves from the sun. And we had to have our water. And we, we had breaks. My father would say, break time. My father learned a few English words, ham and eggs, 
fill her up, break time. Those were the phrases my father learned in English. And we carried a radio. So that, that music, it wasn't, my father would listen to Spanish and then he would say, okay, it's your turn. So we would switch to English. So listening to music out in the vineyards or out in the olive trees or in the orange trees, that was our enjoyment. That was it. Well, thank you so much, Olga. This has been such an amazing learning experience. I've definitely had my eyes opened and I'm so glad I was able to meet such a kind and I could tell such a genuine heart and someone who has such a care for agriculture and our community. Thank you so much for having me. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Dora's Restaurant sits just off Valencia Boulevard, the main road in Woodlake. Over the years, it's become a favorite spot for good Mexican food and music. KVPR's Mavi Bolaños has the story of the woman who's run this local spot for over 30 years. Dora Orozco takes a sip of fireball cinnamon whiskey, sets the glass down, and starts belting out a song. She's standing on the small tile stage inside her Mexican restaurant, and the customers are captivated. The song, Ya Lo Se by Jenny Rivera. At Dora's restaurant, Friday night is karaoke night, and has been for the past 20 years, except during the pandemic. But Dora doesn't just sing karaoke in her restaurant. She's sung in over 15 states across the country, opening shows for legendary Mexican singers like Pepe Aguilar. She was even good friends with Mexican singer and songwriter Juan Gabriel. He was the one who told her to start singing in her restaurant. Él me dijo, ¿tú cantas en tu restaurant? Y digo, no, no canto. ¿Por qué no? He said you need to showcase your talent, so she began doing karaoke. And she invites her customers to sing karaoke, too. A woman named Gloria gets up to sing La Reina es el Rey by Beatriz Adrián. Dora tells me she was 13 when she moved here from a small town in Michoacán in 1977. She says it was totally different from the life she knew back in Mexico. Her mom was a single mother of three kids, and the older two worked in the fields picking oranges. So for us, we didn't know nothing about vacations or nothing like that. It was just, okay, no school, work. Even weekends, you know, Saturdays, Sundays, go to work. Dora says she liked working in the fields, but she had a bigger passion, singing. When she turned 16, she started performing at Mexican rodeos in the area. She says her mom did not approve. My mom didn't like it because she said it was dangerous. There's a lot of drugs there. There's this and that. And I go, Mom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing my singing career. And this is what I want to do. Really, I, I was so secure of what I wanted. She'd perform at events, even singing on local radio stations. After graduating high school, she got a job working at a packing house with her mom, but eventually she decided to go back to Mexico to sing. Before she left, she noticed a restaurant for sale. She wanted to buy it, but not because she loved to cook. It's because my mom knew how to, and she worked at uh, different uh, restaurants in Mexico. So I said, well, she has the, she has the taste and the, the skill. And that's why I, I thought about doing something like that, you know, that we can work together. The owner and Dora made a verbal agreement. She would go back to Mexico and sing, make enough money to buy the restaurant, and return to Woodlake. At the age of 20, Dora became a businesswoman. Dora sings another song for the crowd at her restaurant. The turnout is better than she's had since the start of the pandemic. La verdad, yo ya quería cerrar el negocio. La verdad. She was actually ready to close the restaurant after the first few months of the pandemic. But her family and friends convinced her to stick it out. And now... Right now it is, it is good. It is good. No complaints 
about nothing. And she's even performing shows in her hometown in Michoacán, Mexico. But she says she still has music aspirations. Siento que no llegué a donde quería llegar. She says she doesn't feel like she's accomplished what she set out to do with her music career. She'd like to be the next Paquita La del Barrio, a Mexican singer who performed at her own nightclub in Mexico City. For KVPR News, I'm Adi Bolaños in Woodlake. The stories you've just heard are all part of KVPR's The Other California podcast, which is now available wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. The nonprofit organization Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival is on a mission to recruit and educate the next generation of native language speakers. As the group's executive director, Carly Tex, told me, holding on to indigenous language is key to holding on to the culture itself. Some of my most favorite memories were of the times that I spent weaving baskets with my grandmother. And sometimes when we made baskets together, she would teach me language at the same time. And I found that I really enjoyed that time spent with her and writing down the language and repeating it back to her and hearing her laugh as I said the words incorrectly. And when I was, you know, trying to figure out what to get for a degree and how I wanted to uh, define my career, I shifted from different interests and I eventually landed on language and to find some way that I could combine this time that I enjoyed of writing down and recording language and speaking language with some kind of a career. And I also felt that there was a need in my community for people to know how to use some of the resources that were available to us. We've had some written materials on our language. We have some recordings and there were some, with the exception of some after-school classes taught by some elders, there, there was not much else. And so I wanted to continue working with my elders and to continue to learn the language and help my community to preserve the language, revitalize it, and to maintain it. Just give us a sense, though, of, of the scope of the work that you're doing. Well, for me, I'm working to preserve my language, Western Mono, and it actually has maybe four or five different variations and from different communities. So I myself am from several communities, um, from my mom's side, the southernmost band, and from my dad's side, the northernmost band. So I didn't tie myself to focusing on just one dialect. When a language is lost, what is lost with it? When a language is lost, it's the loss of an entire worldview. And you're talking about how an entire people viewed the world. And language loss happened very fast for people in California. The organization that I work with, we work with languages throughout California. And California is a very diverse state as far as languages and cultures go. So we're trying to work with all of them. And um, we believe it's important because California languages are a part of California culture. And our mission is to take those languages and make them a part of everyday life. And in California, you know, we had a very violent history for California indigenous communities with the gold rush, um, the mission systems across the California coast. And you have this, this history of so many interests of massacres and that it was legal to hunt and kill us. And it was encouraged to get rid of us if you wanted to take a piece of land. And then you had the boarding school era where, again, it was traumatic and a systematic way to colonize us and to kill the Indian and save the man. And one good way of doing that was to force us to speak English and force us to not use our own languages and to be punished for doing so. So we have, you know, many stories of elders like our grandparents and great grandparents who were taken away from their communities during that era. So for many of us getting into language, including myself, it's a way to reclaim a part of us that was lost and keep a part of us that's crucial to who we are as a people. There are concepts embedded in our languages which are not translatable to English. There are words that are in English 
but not in our languages. And it's all part of how we view the world and it's a worldview that's unique to our communities. On the community level, um, it's essential to healing and on a more personal level. And we've had a lot of historical trauma in our not too distant past. And our families felt that. And that trauma has passed down the generations and it may have manifested in ways that we see today in our communities as domestic violence, alcoholism, addiction, child abuse, and language and cultural reclamation, revitalization or revival or maintenance. It's all part of that healing process. And we often hear that when we, when I'm working with communities, that it's a part of healing the community. And with that comes revitalization of not just language, but also other cultural aspects like coming of rights ceremonies, songs, and prayers, uh, honoring the changing of the seasons with ceremony and, and prayer. And uh, many communities throughout California are ex experiencing a resurgence of that culture and language is embedded in those cultural traditions. So it's a, it's, it's a matter of healing the community and, and bringing us back to a, a good place. So speaking of community, you know, I, I would imagine that the pandemic has proven to be a, a real challenge in your work, given how isolated we've all been for the last couple of years. Uh, for myself, I started to put more effort into some of my social media, like my Facebook. I created a YouTube channel because I wanted to have something that was um, shareable, something that was easier to access for people who wanted to use the pandemic and quarantine time as a way to focus more on language. So I noticed that some friends of mine were starting to read children's books through Facebook or Instagram. So I wanted to follow suit and also offer something. So I increased my online presence. I also started to run a online institute where several language teachers could, could teach a language to community members that they had recruited. And I noticed that with other communities as well. You know, we learned that it's completely possible to hold a language conference online, to have uh, an international type of conference online, to teach classes online. Um, it wasn't all good, though, because for many of our communities, we noticed that there was a technology gap. So some of them weren't able to participate in everything. We responded to this by giving out small grants to participants so they could boost their internet or purchase a hotspot or go to go to put to put towards getting a tablet or a laptop. But um, for us, for the and for the work that I do, we value our elders very highly because they're some of them are our last speakers of our language. So when the pandemic hit, there was just no question that we're we're going to cancel our in-person things. We want to protect our elders, and so we shifted to all of our activities online, and um, that's where I noticed that the, the technology gap was challenging even to my elders, so I may have lost them when I shifted to going online, but I actually noticed that there was this resurgence of new interest among the younger generation, people who could log in or people who could watch Instagram Live or Facebook Live, so that is very exciting because it's reaching a younger generation, which I hope inspires them to latch onto the language and to continue it beyond the pandemic time. I'd love to hear about the Breath of Life Institute, which is one of those, another a part of your work that is, is going to be returning after that hiatus that the pandemic caused. It's designed for communities that may have no speakers to learn from, but they have materials like recordings, um, microfilm, they have digitized copies of field books, and those are accessible through archives. And um, the archives that we work with are at UC Berkeley. So they have a wealth of materials for people to work from. However, they're written for other researchers, other linguists, anthropologists, people who came through California studying us and writing down how we speak our language and how we 
do our culture and how we live. And those items are archived. And so these communities, if they have no one to speak from, that might be their only source of the language written down or the language being spoken. So we um, have we hold this institute for one week and it's an application process and we coordinate with the archives to have access so the groups can go in and find materials on their language and we pair them with a linguistic partner somebody who is trained in linguistics or is a, a specialist of that language and we have them work together to decipher the language of those materials and by the end of the week we have them do a project where they share something of what they've learned and so for many uh, sometimes it's just being able to read some sentences written in their language. Uh, we have them do homeworks where they learn how different researchers have written their language. And then we have them do projects where they put sentences together. And um, they have we have panels where we try to bring in some really motivating people to inspire them to continue their, their language work after the Institute's over. And so, so at the end of the week, they come up with these really great projects. Um, like I said, trying to read sentences from the paper or they learn a song that they heard in the archive. And so they sing it. Um, some of them want to come in and they want to learn how to write a prayer. So they learn how to write a prayer and then speak it out loud. And sometimes they want to build a database or a website. So our linguistic partners help them to reach that goal. And this is all within a week. And it's a really emotional experience. And I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced a breath of life where I wasn't coming out of the room bawling in tears because for some of them, it's the first words that have been spoken of their language in generations. So it's a very powerful experience. It's, it certainly sounds like it. And I'm, I'm so happy that you're going to be able uh, to do that, do that work again this year. Um, well, I've been talking with Carly Tex, the Executive Director of Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival. Carly, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. California State University Bakersfield curated the exhibit Fact or Fiction, Looking at the Migrant Labor Experience in 1930s California. It's on display now through May 20th in the university's Walter Stern Library. And it features photographs by Dorothea Lang that reveal the diversity of migrant laborers in the San Joaquin Valley. To learn more, I spoke to Donato Cruz, the Archives and Marketing Assistant at the Stern Library, along with Outreach and User Engagement Librarian Kristen Gallant. She started the conversation by considering Lang's complicated legacy. Dorothea Lang, I mean, I would say recently in scholarship has been, you know, her work has received criticism, not just for the fact that of the whiteness of her images, but also because there's an issue of ethics there, right? If you go back and you listen to Florence Thomas, who, who was migrant mother, and you listen to her comments, I mean, she maybe had a four or five minute interaction with Lang when her picture was taken. And she didn't want her image taken. She she didn't see her want her face to be the face of the Dust Bowl, right? Um, and so there's this exploitation piece that's going on. So there was that problem. And then the problem that when you look at all of the publications that came out for the FSA and the WPA, they, they were they were white Christian farmers. But when we look at her body of work, when we go in and we actually look at the photos that she was taking on these trips all across the United States, there are so many different cultures that are represented, but that's not how um, poverty or the migrant labor movement was interpreted for the rest of America. So what we're trying to do is to go back and look at her actual photographs and not just her photographs, but also um, the commentaries that she wrote because she took notes of every photograph in her notebook. And so those descriptions and the words, the words she used are almost as important as the images themselves. So we wanted to try to show 
a peek into history and into the full history so that it wasn't just Okies that came to California. There were already migrant laborers here of um, Hispanic and Latino descent that had been here for generations. And there were Japanese workers, there were Filipino workers, and there were Black workers that um, who came from enslaved ancestors who, whose families were probably sharecroppers in the South. And when mechanization happens, they get moved out too. And so we have this culmination of events happening at the same time. And we have these different cultures appearing together and working together at the same time. And yet they are excluded from the image of the poor migrant laborer. Donato, as you were putting this collection together, you know, what, what was your intention? What was your hope uh, for those who, who come and, and encounter these works? I think the intention is to, uh, for people that come in and see the collection is to really see like the diversity in the photographs and the diversity of, of agricultural labor uh, well before what we think of like Cesar Chavez and, and some of those social movements from like the 70s and 60s and 80s um, to see kind of the full body diversity. I know my exposure was when I was doing uh, my master's degree and I was seeing some of these uh, Dorothea Lange photographs that had people of color. And that was kind of my first um, kind of exposure that it wasn't necessarily what we had learned or what we had seen before, but these things had actually existed. These photographs were available online as well. So kind of um, to uh, give back my exposure to these types of history to the people that come to the library. In looking at the photos, to me, what something that jumped out was this sort of through line of poverty and and how you know poverty in the 1930s compared to poverty today. Donato, what were your are your thoughts about what these images have to say about not only who we were then but who we are now? I, I think there's a strong parallel, and we had a me and Kristen had a conversation about this yesterday about how some of these things are still reflected today, like the uh, lack of adequate housing for many people, the, you know, the, the still ongoing conversation about uh, labor rights and many things that we see in these photographs, right? That we see this ongoing conversation about what is the government's involvement in providing um, social services, interacting with people. So I, I see a very strong connection there. And then Kristen, how did you acquire this collection? A lot of the materials that are used in the exhibit actually were in our archives already. Um, We just expanded on the images by going into the Library of Congress and looking specifically at the Kern County collections um, that were uh, of the images that were taken by Lang. So um, a lot of the materials were provided by um, looking at local newspapers, um, going in and uh, looking at interviews, oral histories, things that were already a part of our historical research center here um, at the Stern Library. So tell me about the way that migrant farm work was marketed to laborers and and what the exhibition has to say about that. So we have uh, a couple of photos that um, are in our panels and there's there's a couple things going on at the same time, right? So you have like this push for people to go find, um, farming labor jobs because that's where they're skilled, right? That's what they know. And then at the same time too, you also have this like commercialism um, going on. Uh, One of the, so there's a sign that was provided by farmers that says it's small farm, cotton picking, safe, rent-free, right? So there's some irony going on there. They want these people to come here and work on their land for pennies. It's probably not sanitary. Um, and the pay is probably horrible and the working conditions are, are brutal. So, but they, farmers, small farmers would try to get these people to come in and work on their farms. And then going on at the same time, you have California government saying, well, we don't want to support all these people coming into our state or all these people coming into our counties. And you have local sheriff's departments that are taking these people and escorting them back to train stations or to bus stations to get them to get them back out of the county. And yet you have farmers offering these safe working conditions, paid rent-free working conditions for them to come in. So it's kind of like this, this vicious cycle that migrants get sucked into at the time. And then also... We have like this canning factory, but they were putting up these billboards all over the country saying that America has the highest standard of living, um, come, you know, come to America. And then it's this white family in this car with this dog and it's the nuclear family, one boy, one girl, a mom and dad, a dog, and everybody's smiling and everybody's happy. 
on this huge billboard. And then if, in the photograph, when you look behind it, you see this cluster of migrant, poor migrant workers trying to make a makeshift camp or a makeshift house behind this billboard. It's just, Lang was so good at picking out the irony in this situation. Well, and then before we wrap up, Donato, why don't you just uh, let our listeners know what the details are? How can they interact with this exhibition? Sure. Uh, the best way to inter- interact with this exhibition is to uh, come and see it. It's portrayed by a series of uh, panels that kind of go from um, the left to right. And we have 12 panels that kind of go through the history, the photographs. Um, I think that's the best way to interact with it is the, the physical uh, exhibition, but uh, we also have an online companion to the gal- to the exhibition where they can go to uh, library.cucb.edu, and we have a um, we call it a spotlight, but it's like a graphic that points you directly to the to the exhibit. Uh, Kristen, do you want to follow up on that one? We also have an online component, um, and the title of the exhibit is Factor Fiction, Looking at the Migrant Labor Experience in 1930s California. Um, it posts to our local library sources, but patrons do have, uh, community patrons do have privileges. We also have um, a bibliography, and there's additional internet content that people can access, and we're going to put some more links up um, to the Library of Congress collection so people can actually just be at their home computers or on their mobile devices and just look at these images. I think that if anything, just looking at these people and looking at their humanity and trying to put yourself in their position and think about all of the different things that were going on at the time, all of the, there was economic downturn, there was um, labor was being replaced by mechanized farming, you know, and that's an issue going on today. We're still having issues with big agri, big agriculture and how it affects our um, society. Um, looking at immigration, looking at migration, looking at standards of living, all of these things are kind of going on at the same time. And then um, you have uh, the migrant mother photograph coming out as being the face of the Dust Bowl, but she really wasn't the face of the Dust Bowl. She was just one person in, a, in thousands that were, that were going through this trauma at the same time. So I really hope that um, people come in and see it in person, but then also take a look at the online portion. And maybe the um, people will be inspired to, to do their own research and read their own materials about it and educate themselves ab- about the history. Well, I've been talking with Kristen Gallant and Donato Cruz with the CSU Bakersfield Walter Stern Library. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, a Valley Chamber group that's been around for decades celebrates music across the centuries in a concert on Sunday. KVPR's David Aus spoke with two members of Moment Musical. Well, we're pleased to welcome two members of Moment Musical, Leanna Elmore and Cynthia Stewart. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Cynthia, we'll start with you. Moment Musical has been around for several decades now. When was it founded? How did it come about? Founded on February 26, 1989. And this was a concert at the Art Museum when they built that auditorium. And the members that uh, founded this were Janet Erickson on flute, Rachel Aldrich on oboe, Linda Hamilton on string bass, and Alan Ray on piano. Three of those members are still active in Moment Musical. It's amazing. When did you join the group? I joined uh, about five years later in 1994. Just played a short piece with them, but I've stuck around and <laughs> here I am too. It's been a long time. It's- now, many members of our audience have heard you perform before, whether they know it or not. If they've been to a Fresno Philharmonic concert, they've heard you play. How long have you been with the Phil? Oh, gosh. Uh, since 1980. Okay. You know, when you play in a symphony orchestra, unless you're the music director, you don't get to pick the music. So the founding principle of Moment Musical was a bunch of people who are good players and like to make music together said, hey, let's make a band and we get to pick the music this time, right? That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's kind of our basis and that's how we operate to this day. Actually, it's kind of interesting because we do have a string quintet we have mostly a woodwind 
quintet, although that's kind of changing, shifting right now, because you can imagine uh, being around for 33 years that there would be changes in personnel for whatever right. reason, people moving away, people passing away. <laughs> but uh, we have uh, those two. And then we also have Alan Ray on the piano and we have Laura Porter on the harp. So with you can imagine with that large of a group and they all want to play their things, that uh, it's really an interesting kind of uh, challenge to put our programming together, which is what Rachel and I do. And so sometimes the pieces that you would lo love to play get put off for several seasons. <laughs> and um, just recently, we finally, uh, Alan and Judy Robinson and I got to do a Mozart piano trio that we'd put off for several years because it just didn't work out for scheduling it until January. And even though it was a very sparsely attended concert <laughs> in the middle of Delta, we did get to play it. It was, you know, the best part of doing this is actually the rehearsal. You know, you get together with your friends and you're working on the music. And that's really, I think, even more joyful and fun than uh, the actual concert. Well, that's the, the fun of creation without the stress of performance. Right, so, exactly. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and, and particularly coming out of COVID, that's what musicians have missed the most is yeah. that the camaraderie of creating with other musicians. Now, as you mentioned, that a group that's been around this long is going to have personnel changes over the years. And one of the great things is that as you move on, younger generations of players can come in and join the group and bring their spirit, enthusiasm, and experience as well. And we have one of those with us with whom you have a special relationship. I'll let you introduce her. Well, this is uh, my beloved baby girl, <laughs> Leanna Elmore. Hello. All right. <laughs> Uh, Leanna, I'd asked how you got your start in music, but uh, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> you were uh, yeah. you were born right into it. When did you start playing, Leanna? When I was five years old, my mother, you know, started me on on violin lessons after she had already taught all four of my other older siblings to also play the violin. So it's a family affair. Cynthia, what's it like for you to make music in a group with Leanna? Oh well, it's wonderful, and I am just so so proud of her. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then plus she uh, auditioned a few years ago for the Philharmonic and, and she got a, a really great seat in there. And I'm super proud about that, too. So it's a privilege to get to play with her. So let's get into the music a bit and the music that is selected for this uh, concert coming up on Sunday, March 27th, crosses the centuries, beginning with uh, the great German Baroque composer Georg Philipp Telemann. I'd like to hear about this piece. Okay, well, this is interesting because this is one of those pieces that got put off from season to season. And so now we're finally getting to do it. And I'm just going to let you know what Rachel said about it first. She heard the Telemann on Sunday Baroque. And she said, this piece hits the mark of a great trio sonata and has chordal structures that look forward to the classical era. And Alan added that Telmon can be a very routine sounding composer, but when he hits it good, as he does with this trio, it's exquisite. This piece is also unique historically in that it's probably the first piano trio to, to provide truly independent parts for the three players instead of having a lot of them doubling each other. So we look forward to hearing that one. And then moving forward, we go to one of the great Russian composers and probably regarded as the, the first Russian composer to achieve recognition across the country and is considered the fountainhead of Russian classical music, Mikhail Glinka, this romance. And that opens up a set of uh, harp pieces. So I'm going to assume that Laura Porter brought this piece into the group. Yes, she did. It's interesting. This ro romance uh, is actually an arrangement of a vocal song by Glinka, uh, from 1838. And in the original version, the cello part plays what we have as the violin line, which is what I would be doing, am going to do. And the vocal line is what we now have as the cello line. So it's just sort of a switch around. And now uh, Judy Robinson on the cello will be playing the main melody. And I'm kind of, you know, like an obligato above it. And it's kind of a soulful piece, kind of Russian and soulful. And then the other piece that Laura picked is by Alfred Oli, who lived from 1866 to 1948. He was a 
Czech harpist slash composer. The gondolied is uh, his opus one. And as you can kind of guess, it evokes a gondola ride. And it's just kind of very graceful and gracious, and it's fun to play. And then from Spain, Joaquin Turina, we have a quartet, La Oración del Torero. Yeah, it's actually going to be a quintet. My husband, Adam Elmore, is going to add in there with bass, which is really great because it really adds a lot more depth to the sound. The piece itself is inspired by a time that Torina saw a bullfight and uh, Oración del Torero is prayer of the bullfighter. And so you hear elements of drama, which you could probably picture as the bullfight happening, but then there's also elements that are very meditative and uh, slow and lyrical. So yeah, lots of different styles that you could hear in that one. So I really enjoy playing it. The program opens with a woodwind piece and closes with a woodwind piece from the great Argentinian composer Astor Piazzolla Love to hear about this piece. The, just the fact that it's for saxophone and piano is really interesting and a demonstration of uh, Piazzolla's contribution to tango and turning it into what they call Nuevo Tango or New Tango. He liked to use lots of different untraditional instruments like saxophone or even electric guitar sometimes. And the first movement was written in memory of his father a few days after his death, so it's a very personal work. And uh, the second movement, Oblivion, is one of the most famous pieces written by Piazzolla and is very haunting and atmospheric. And then the final one, people are probably also very familiar with Libertango, <laughs> which is a merging of the Spanish word Libertad and Tango. And it's another really great demonstration of how Piazzolla was very innovative with the style of tango. So I think I'm the most excited about hearing that one as a listener. Cynthia Stewart, Deanna Elmore, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having us. Cynthia Stewart and Leanna Elmore are members of the Valley-based chamber group Moment Musical. They're performing this Sunday, March 27th, 3 p.m. at Westminster Presbyterian Church, 50 East Santa Ana in Fresno. For Valley Edition, I'm David Alves. And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health dash equity.